Well, amen. Thanks, Tony, Chase, the worship team. Go ahead and have a seat, and let me offer my good morning to you, Harvest Church. My name is Jamie, of the Pilgrim Serving as a pastor and elder here at Harvest, and the joy of continuing our study through the Gospel of John this morning. If you have a copy of God's Word, however you might access that, John chapter 19 is where we'll find ourselves, 31 through 42. We'll stand here in a moment, but just by way of of framing it, John 20, 31 tells us that John wrote this book so that we would know that Jesus is the Son of God and that by believing in Him have life in His name. Okay, I know it serves as repetition and reminder, but again, that's the grid through which to read the gospel. That everything John tells us, how does this reveal Jesus is the Son of God and by believing in Him show us the life, eternal life that we can have in his name. That being said, John 19, 31 through 42 picks up on the death of our Lord. If you're able, please stand for the reading of God's word. Since, verse 31, it was a day of preparation so that bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken, that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus, saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it is born witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth, that you also may believe. For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled, that not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another scripture says, they will look upon him whom they've pierced. And after these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. And now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there, John 19, verses 31 through 42. It's the word of God for the people of God. And God's people said, praise be to God. You may be seated. Father, we do ask for your help, that we would interpret your word correctly, uh, that we would honor you in the way that it's preached, the way that it's applied. We do confess publicly that the Bible's from you. It being from you, it's authoritative. It's trustworthy. And so we ask in this time, by the power of your spirit, that you would shape us, conforming us more and more into the image of your son. It's in Christ's wonderful name I pray. Amen. There's a lot in this this morning. It's largely narrative. And, and for some, at least for me, at a cursory level, it, it contains a few facts uh, that seem a pretty historically irrelevant all right, easy to gloss over, and yet I think we'll find, as God words, uh, God's Word will do, if we dig just a little bit, we're going to find that even what may seemingly be an offhanded reference becomes a treasure of connectedness from Genesis all the way to the life of the person of Jesus Christ. And it is part of my hope this morning that in looking at this passage that our affections for the Lord and his word are stirred anew 
by the unbelievable reality that this book is tethered from beginning to end seamlessly by the Spirit of God. There are a couple points that I think are going to hit us this morning, and and I only say that because they hit me repeatedly uh, to the point of troubling my spirit in an emotional sense this week, looking at the reality of what this passage shines a light on in my life. And maybe via how it shines on my life, you may find it come home and be applicable to yours as well. But it begins here in 31, saying, since the day of preparation, so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for the Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate, their legs might be broken, they might be taken away. Seemingly logistical. A part of the narrative that we could read quickly and move on, but there's something there. Why? Why at this moment, on this day, at this particular point, are the Jewish leaders who've just put Jesus on trial, they wanted him crucified. They wanted it done publicly. They wanted everyone to see the blasphemous, treasonous Jesus. But then why the rush to get him down? This was the point, wasn't it? Put on full display before the nation, this is the price of blasphemy. This is what happens when you claim to be a king, but are not. And yet as soon as Jesus dies, you sense this almost anxious urgency to, hey, we got to get them down and get them out of here. Why? Well, in the book of Deuteronomy, you don't have to flip there, but I'll reference it for you. You could write it down, look at it later. In the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 21, verses 22 through 23, read as follows. Now hear this. If a man, this is God giving instruction to the nation. If a man has committed a crime punishable by death, And he is put to death and you hang him on a tree. His body shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him the same day. For a hanged man is cursed by God. You shall not defile your land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. So now we get some color to the situation. Why are they so anxiously urgent to get Jesus' body down? Because the Jewish leaders, now hear the irony in this. The Jewish leaders are saying, hey, we got to get his body down because if we don't, we're going to sin against God. In fact, if we don't get his body down, God's word says we're going to be cursed. There will be defilement in the land. And I think you can make a really good argument that there is no verse that drips with sinful self-righteousness more than John chapter 19, verse 31. You have a group of moral, religious men so blind to the fact that every trial they just put on was illegal. Everything that, every process they just undertook was done through lies and corruption and coercion. They've forgotten about every single time they approached Jesus, they tried to trap him and trick him. 
But all of a sudden, their own defilement is not in view. And that's the root of self-righteousness. It's our ability to be blind to our own defilement, yet possessing the great clarity and of being acutely aware of the sin of someone else. Let's forget that we just illegally executed someone. We better get his body down. Because God's word says, get his body down. And we are a righteous people. You know, self-righteousness is one of the most dangerous traps for a moral and religious person. In fact, if we've been reading carefully and studying carefully, we'll find that it's the most consistent line of rebuke that Jesus follows in the Gospels. It's the rebuke of the self-righteous. Okay, so what does it mean? Uh, to be self-righteous means a couple things. The, the obvious uh, 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 reality of it is that you believe your righteousness is found in you. What you do, what you say. And now, none of us are usually out front enough to say that we actually think that that's true. Right? So we don't verbally acknowledge that, yes, my own conduct is actually superior to yours. In fact, my morality and my moral standards and my standards for thought and for speech and the way I make decisions, the way that I parent and the way that I use my money, that those things, they actually are better than you. So we're not going to articulate it, but we think it. We feel it. We act as if it's true. And so one of the most troubling things about self-righteousness is the subtlety through which it creeps in because it can disguise itself as zeal for the Lord. I need to talk to you about your sin. You may confess and repent. That's true. But if we want to talk about their sin and never ours, you're self-righteous. If someone's sin is more appalling to you than your own self-righteousness if you are the standard by which you measure someone else I wouldn't do it that way I would have never said that I would have never responded like that did you see how she talked to her kid in Target we would never do that in the Trussell family self-righteous it is the ability with great clarity to see defilement except for your own. Okay, now those things are fairly recognizable if we stop and think about them. Let me tell you the harder part about self-righteousness. And, and if you were to pick, and I think we could pick uh, with some safety here, uh, the, the preeminent Old Testament example of self-righteousness is Jonah. So one character, if you had to pick one, I'd say, what is the best example of self-righteousness in the entirety of the Old Testament? I'd say it's probably Jonah. Okay, now, everything that we just said is true about Jonah. He thought he was morally superior uh, uh, to everyone else. He thought that he was morally superior to everyone in Nineveh. So he didn't want to go there, didn't want to minister there. Right? They were the pagans, they were the dirty, they were the unclean. 
But I tell you, all of that being true, it's not the most troubling part about Jonah. The most troubling part about Jonah, which is the most troubling part about self-righteousness, is the fact that self-righteousness positioned Jonah in a place where he actually hated grace. And if you want to do a little inventory, like I've done this week, if you want to know if there may be some self-righteousness creeping in, maybe you're aware of it, maybe you're not, but if you want to start to find out where does it kind of reign inside of you and me, it's at what point do you and I start hating grace? Now, why do I phrase it like that? Well, for Jonah, Jonah is enraged that God would show grace to the people of Nineveh. In fact, when the people of Nineveh repented, it says God showed what they did and he relented the disaster. Listen to Jonah. Jonah's a pastor, prophet. He's a moral man. He's a religious man, church attender, probably a tither. Maybe even went to his D.C. regularly. Checks all the boxes. When Nineveh repents, it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. Oh, Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew, watch this now, that you are a gracious God and merciful slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore, O Lord, please take my life from me. What? Jonah. Jonah wants to die because God showed grace to a group of people that Jonah thought only deserved condemnation. Where does self-righteousness go ultimately? It traces the line of rendering you and me a, a people who detest grace unless it's shown to us. And Jonah's got no problem with God being kind to him. He is enraged at God's kindness towards someone that Jonah deems irreparable. It's reprehensible to him. So when we see these Jewish leaders in John chapter 19, so legalistically concerned with following a statute of defilement, it is laughable, their blindness to their own corruption. And the warning to heed for you and me is, is that becoming true of us as well? Are there moments, instances, are there categories of people where you go, I actually get bothered by the fact that God would show them grace. That's self-righteousness. It's the place of Jonah. It's the place of the religious leaders in John chapter 19. Verse 31. So they come, they say, you got to get the bodies down. I mean, we're a clean people. We just executed the Son of God, but we're clean. We don't want to become unclean, so let's get the body down. 
So the soldiers go to break the legs. It was the practice. If anyone had not yet died, uh, according to their crucifixion, if you broke their legs, they were unable to push up and take a breath. And so they would asphyxiate quicker, uh, hanging there suffocating. And so they get the guy on Jesus' left. They get the guy on Jesus' right. They come to Jesus and realize that he's already dead. Okay, now we have no idea the motivation behind this soldier. It necessarily wouldn't have been a common practice to stick the side of someone who were on the cross who would have broken the legs waiting for them to die. So maybe he was vindictive. Maybe he thought it was funny. Maybe he thought, look at this. Well, you know, well, let me mess with this man, this king of the Jews. Regardless of why he did it, here's what's fascinating is in that moment, this offhanded act by a Roman soldier places him squarely in the providential fulfillment of the will of God. And maybe just as an encouragement uh, to us, especially in the times that we're in right now, uh, isn't that true of human history? That unaware, unwittingly so, human history moves according to the providential will of God, whether we are conscious of it or not. And if this soldier doesn't pierce the side of Jesus, then the prophecy in Zechariah doesn't come true. He didn't know the prophecy in Zechariah that they'll look upon him whom they have pierced, but he fulfills it in that moment. So let's be encouraged. History is never outside of our God's hands. Amen? It's been that way from the beginning. It will be that way until the end. And it's in this piercing that I think we're going to find the glorious beauty of the gospel come home to us this morning. I'll make two points on it, and then we'll move on to two unlikely characters, Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, but the piercing of Jesus' side. And John's reference that blood and water flow. Now, maybe that's John simply stating a medical reality, that they pierced him and blood and water flowed, and yet... It would also probably be naive to think it's only a logistical aside. And it's been debated that the, the meaning of the symbolism. So why did he say blood and water? Why did he reference that? He could have left it out. What does he mean by that? And you can read and research the way theologians, pastors, preachers, whatever they debate on. But I think there are two pretty prominent things we can safely arrive at this morning. And here's the first. Here's the first. I think John, when Jesus hang on that cross and his, his side is pierced, I think there's a backdrop in his mind. And unless we situate that picture against the backdrop of the greater biblical narrative, the magnitude of the moment may escape us. And so, and you may be familiar with the story, in Exodus 17, and, I, and more than usual, I'm cross-referencing this morning, but stick with me. In Exodus 17, the nation of Israel has been led out of Egypt by Moses. Okay, so the plagues have come, the Red Sea have parted, they've crossed the Red Sea, and now they are moving through the wilderness. They're tired, they're fatigued, they're thirsty. They begin to complain. In Exodus 17, it says, All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages according to the commandment of the Lord, and camped at Rephidim. But there was no water for the people to drink. Now watch this carry through. Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water. 
Moses said, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water, and the people grumbled against Moses and said, why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock? So Moses cried out, what shall I do with this people? Welcome to ministry. They are almost ready to stone me. Just kidding, guys. They're almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel. Take in your hand the staff with you struck the Nile and go. And behold, I'll stand before you there at the rock. Now watch this. At the rock of Horbin, when you strike the rock, water will come and the people will drink. When you strike the rock, water will flow and the people will drink. In John chapter 4, Jesus meets a Samaritan woman at the well. And he says, hey, if you keep only getting your water from right here, you're always going to be thirsty. If you drink of the water that I offer, you will never thirst again And Jesus says, the offer I give is living water. Strike the rock, water will flow. I am living water. When you strike the rock of ages who hangs on the cross and water flows, the point I think John is trying to make is at that point, anyone who's lost in the wilderness Anyone who is parched spiritually, hopeless, despairing, having only trusted in yourself, realizing there's something else, realizing you need forgiveness, you need grace, you need transformation, strike the rock, God told Moses, and water will flow and the people will drink. Strike the rock of ages, says John, and water will flow, and sinful mankind will be satisfied. Amen? And so when water flows from Jesus, John's exhortation is, drink living water. That newness of life and transformation will come. Have you tasted it? via bowing our knees and repenting and professing that Jesus is Lord, have we tasted it? Or do you keep going like the Samaritan woman to a well of self-righteousness and sin, knowing that you're just gonna have to go back again tomorrow? Strike the rock and the people will be satisfied. Strike the rock of ages and sinful humanity can be reconciled to God. Have you tasted it? Because that's the first, I think, poignant backdrop on what seems to be just a logistical comment. It's much deeper than that. Here's the second thing. And actually, this is what I love to preach at a wedding. So I've done a, a fair amount of your weddings. I've got another one coming up, so sorry I'm about to ruin part of your ceremony. Uh, uh, I love preaching this idea at a wedding. The side of Jesus pierced. Okay, so if you go all the way back to Genesis chapters 1 and 2, 
you see God in his creative act to create Adam. So he makes man. God, in looking at man, then exclaims, hey, it's not good for man to be alone. And, and, and God makes Adam a bride, Eve. And when Eve comes on the scene and Adam sees her, he is, uh, he is just uh, raptured by her beauty, by her flawlessness, by her perfection, that she is without blemish. Adam looks at her and the first artistic expression in all of human history is Adam speaking poetry at his bride, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. He's saying, you are mine and you are perfect and you are beautiful. And where does that first Adam's bride originate from? His side, his side, that God opens Adam's side, takes a rib, and fashions his bride. And in that moment, that bride burst forth blameless. Now Jesus, if you read Romans 5, you'll get the, the title as Paul puts forth. Jesus is referenced scripturally as the second Adam. It's where the first Adam ultimately fails the second Adam is victorious. Where the first Adam is disobedient, the second Adam is perfectly obedient, and so on. And just like the first Adam had a bride originating from his side, that when Jesus' side is pierced on the cross, he gets a bride too, and it's called the church. A people who are marred by sin, ruined by iniquity, stained with all of their filth. When the side of the second Adam is pierced, his bride, where, Adam, where, where Eve starts uh, uh, holy and perfect and then becomes sinful, the second Adam's bride starts sinful and is then made holy when the blood and water flow. And so the first Adam had a bride from his side and the second Adam gets a bride from his side as well and it's called the church. And it's you and it's me. And it's all whoever by God's grace alone have responded to the work of Christ that we've been studying. And so strike the rock and water will flow. Pierce the side and the second Adam gets a bride as well. And what Paul says about uh, presenting a bride, the church in Ephesians chapter five is that he might present her, you and me, holy and blameless to the Father. The piercing of Jesus' side is much more than a historical fact. It's a launching pad for gospel proclamation, amen? We move on from this. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly, for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. Now, before we jump on Joseph for kind of being a fearful disciple, let's pause and realize, beginning with myself, there's some secret discipleship tendencies in us. Right, so, so every time it gets a little bit uncomfortable 
to, to interact with a neighbor of mine. Uh, we start kind of talking about the pastor stuff, and I see them getting a little fidgety. We had a, my wife. My wife's wonderful. She October is kind of her month to shine. Not only is her birthday in October, uh, but she hosts a cakewalk in her neighborhood. She's big into October, and so we got a cakewalk a few weeks ago, and, and met one of the neighbors I met for the first time, and he was. Uh, very, let's say, colorfully explaining some of his perspective on things. And then he looked at me and said, what, did you, what do you do for work? And I sat there and going, huh. <laughs> well, I'm a pastor. Oh, I'm so sorry, pastor. I did not mean to. I go, man, come on, man. Okay, I'm not an alien. I'm a pastor. Right, so I'm, I'm used to it. You get that all the time. But it, it can make things a little bit awkward. Right, they're... they're there are tons, and that's a silly one, but for all of us, there are these little kind of nuanced pressure points where if we're honest, it's just socially easier to navigate those moments if our discipleship to Christ is in secret. The more out front we are, the more awkward it becomes. Maybe the more costly it becomes. So I'm not going to jump on him for being a disciple in secret for fear of the Jews because he's about to cast off the fear and be one of the preeminent examples of gospel courage in the entirety of the New Testament. Secret fear of the Jews asked Pilate they might take the body away, and Pilate gave permission. Now, Joseph of Arimathea is mentioned in every single gospel. So if we take all four and put them together, we get a more complete picture of them. So one thing to know about him, he's actually a member of the Sanhedrin, which is a group of people that just put Jesus on trial. Okay, not only is he a member of Sanhedrin, but we also know he's wealthy and he's prominent. You don't get an audience with Pilate unless you're a man of means or prominence and stature. So we're here we got a member of the Sanhedrin, wealthy, socially prominent, secretly a disciple of Jesus, about to take Christ's body down from the cross and take it with his servants and Nicodemus and his servants to the tomb. This is the turning point in Joseph's life. We have to ask, as we're reading about Joseph and Nicodemus, who we'll get here in a minute, where'd Peter go? Where's Matthew? Where's Philip? Where's Andrew? Where are these guys? Where's James? Where are all these guys who have publicly been with Jesus in his most vulnerable moment? They're gone. And as the sun is setting, and when their Lord has died, they've disappeared. And if you go there, you can, you can see it kind of out of the darkness as the day is drawing to an end. Come Joseph and Nicodemus. Nicodemus, who had only talked to Jesus in John 3 at nighttime because he didn't want to be seen associating with him. Joseph, who had been a secret disciple up to this point. What happened? The cross stamped their life in an irrevocable way. And nothing would ever be the same for these two men. 
it's going to cost Joseph everything. Or he doesn't sit well at the next Sanhedrin meeting when they're all sitting around talking about how they put Jesus to death. And, Nick, and Joseph goes, hey guys, I think you got it wrong. The one you thought was a curse, I buried him. I honored him. I covered him in spices and laid him in a tomb. The one you thought was treasonous, I worship. Nicodemus, also a ruling member amongst the Jews, who would only talk to Jesus in the dark, is now the one who carries the light of the world to his tomb. That's courage. That is gospel transformational courage. It's going to cost them everything. Social standing, wealth, power, friendships, family, the synagogue, everything. Because they looked upon the Lord. And I think Paul thinks back on them. And he looks at himself and says, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives within me. And the life and I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. It's what we're going to sing in a minute, that were the whole realm of creation mine. That would be an offering far too small. For the cross of Christ demands what? My life, my all. It costs these two men everything. Transformational gospel courage. I was telling my wife this week, I was thinking about myself, my, my sinful proclivities, kind of things that seem a bit more enticing now maybe than, than they used to. Tell you, I tell you my biggest fear, Shan, I said, here's my biggest fear for me. This might not be true for you, it's true for me. That 30 years from now, I look back at my life and I choose comfort over courage. That my life is so marked by explainable, ordinary things that it would be hard for someone to look at it and say, you must be stamped with unexplainable courage. Okay, so the question, and we've at least got to ask the question. And I get that the Bible's full of wisdom and you got to make wise choices. And it's, I understand that. My fear for me is that wisdom will become the excuse for comfort. Wisdom will be my out for inaction. Wisdom will be what prevents me from saying, is there a direction of courage that the Lord is calling me towards that the world cannot explain? It's Steve Winstead going to Ethiopia. You can't explain that according to worldly wisdom. I can at least. 
And that doesn't have to be the way it manifests itself, but it's a particular example. God may be calling you to some financial courage, to some serving courage, to some evangelistic courage. I just know that I'd rather look like these two guys than like the 11 who have run and locked themselves in a room somewhere. So Joseph and Nicodemus come walking out of secrecy into the light and they say, if he paid that price, he gets everything, everything. And so I don't know, if you always say, well, what does it look like? What does gospel courage look like? I don't know. I know it starts by at least asking God the question, are you calling me to something? Are you urging me to something? Is the Spirit nudging me towards something? And when I tell my family about it, they're going to think I'm crazy. When I tell my friends about it, they're going to think I'm a fool. That when I go to the next Sanhedrin meeting and I don't tow the party line of how I'm supposed to do things in, 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 in you know, uh, uh, our cultural expectation of, of, of prioritizing wealth and comfort and security, when I don't toe the party line on comfort anymore, they're going to look at me and think I'm a fool. Well, what is it? What is it for you? What is it for me? Are we asking God, help me step into the path of Joseph and Nicodemus? Expose my tendency towards secret discipleship and embolden me with transformational gospel courage. It's a disrupting text, isn't it? So I don't know what the Lord, how he'll answer that for you and how he answer that for me. And sometimes he answers it by saying, stay put, be faithful. But let's harvest at least begin asking him the question. And so, Father, we do ask. We ask right here, right now for several things. The first is this. I don't want to be. I know I can be. I don't want to be like the Jewish leaders who, who, who are so acutely aware of someone else's defilement that they're blind to their own. I don't want that to be true of me. God, that maybe, maybe someone is here and they go, I've not, I've not tasted the living water. That when the rock of ages is, is struck and the water flows, I want newness of life. And the promise of scripture is by the grace of Christ that we become new creations. The old has passed away, the new has come, praise God. And then God, we also ask, where, where do I shrink back? Where is it easier to be a secret disciple and not a bold one? That you'd forgive us for that and illuminate that for us. And God, are there any lines of courage? There, there are a thousand ways in which you could be asking us to take courageous gospel steps. Would you begin to show us some? That at harvest, beginning with myself, that we would be marked in the pathway of Joseph and Nicodemus.
And we ask all this in Christ's wonderful name I pray. Amen.